Throughout her career, photo director Jackie Bates has harnessed the power of photography to give stories new visual dimension. Her visual journalism pushes at the boundaries of what editorial work is and can be, often deeply nuanced, asking questions and provoking the reader rather than simply describing a story. During our conversation, we talk about her new role at the New York Times, in which she's publishing up to 90 stories a week. We talk about the blurring of art and editorial, how she works with emerging talent, as well as visiting some of her most fascinating commissions. As you will hear throughout the episode, Jackie is deeply committed to her responsibility as a photo director, always working in service of the story while taking creative risks and expanding the notion of who can work editorially in meaningful ways. I want our visuals to help advance our understanding about the way we live now. And so the audience or the the readers, hopefully they'll see the world or reflect on their own experiences in a different way. I'm Jen Fletcher, and this is The Messy Truth, Conversations on Photography. Jackie Bates is the Director of Photography for the New York Times Opinion section. She was previously at the California Sunday Magazine, where she won the National Magazine Award for Excellence in Photography two years in a row. Throughout her career, she's also spent time at W Magazine, Elle, Interview and Wired. She holds an MFA in Photography from the School of Visual Arts and currently teaches at Parsons School of Design. She lives and works in New York City. Where did your interest in photography start? Did you pick it up from somewhere? Was it through school? I'm curious kind of where that kind of fascination began. So I started taking pictures in high school a lot of my friends. Maybe I was Connecticut's version of the cobra snake. I worked when I was uh, 16 at Gap Kids and spent the whole year making five fifty six an hour. And I would send myself to Paris to do the Parsons photography program there that they did for high school students. So I was in Paris for a month, taking pictures, getting into trouble there. And we visited Magnum Photos. And it was a really beautiful experience to see the huge archive there and hear the process of working with photographers and maintaining an archive. And so when I got back to New York, I applied to School of Visual Arts and I went there for both my undergrad and grad program. So I started taking pictures of my family, uh, my Italian-American family in Westchester and continued that into grad school. But always at the same time in college, I was interning at museums, galleries and magazines. And I think making my own artwork was always a quite solitary and introspective and, and slow uh, process. And, and so I didn't know at the time how I wanted to work in photography, but I knew that I wanted to learn everything about it from both sides of the camera. And so I learned how to put together an exhibition. So I interned at the Whitney Museum for two years and worked on Ryan McGinley's first museum show and an Ed Roche photography show. And then I worked in a gallery and, and in a bunch of different publications. And I really loved the pace of working on publication. And so after all of those internships, I got a job at Interview Magazine and then Elle Magazine. And then I went to grad school to kind of further my own photography education, thinking that maybe I would want to teach eventually. 
And so at SVA, Tina Barney was my thesis advisor. And, and while we were thumbing through the pictures of my family, she was making me turkey sandwiches. So it was a really wonderful experience to be surrounded by incredible photography teachers in New York. And, and of course, the art scene here is, is like none other. I mean, when you describe it, it's so fascinating because we know that like era of life, those sort of like teenage years and then through college, everything's kind of chaotic. But but the way you describe it, it sounds like either you were very smart and very strategic. Like, I don't think I knew what Magnum was at that age. Were you really like tuned in and like just really into it from such a young age? Or do you think some of this was like happenstance? I think it was probably a combination of both. I mean, to be honest, being so aware of the world outside of school, I think I knew that my student loans were coming as soon as I graduated. So I needed to be smart about getting a job and getting paid for work because my internships, most of them were unpaid. So throughout college, I was babysitting to make money. You know, now all of those unpaid internships are illegal. But I really was so curious about the world outside of the classroom. I'm not sure why. I think it's probably because my mom growing up, I came to photography actually through other arts. So my mom's a composer. And so she would always take my brother to go see things in New York, exhibitions, plays, the opera, experimental music. And so that curiosity was instilled in us from a young age. You've worked at some incredible titles as a photo editor and photo director, the California Sunday Magazine, WL, Interview, Wired, and now you're at the New York Times opinion section. I'm curious what drives your impulse to do the work you do. I have such an endless curiosity and it's kept me working in journalism since I, I started at Interview Magazine two weeks after undergrad, so 2004. So Every, every day there is something different. There is some you know, new way of figuring out how the heck to tell a story. It's different every single day. And I really think that you know, visual journalism expands our understanding of this chaotic world that, you know, and I'm so interested in giving insight into complicated problems and and it's just such a huge platform to provide a glimpse into worlds that are overlooked and not recognized. And I think since high school, flipping through magazines, having that sense of discovery, you know, both in storytelling, new ways of telling a familiar story, and also discovering new photographers. I think, you know, every day we're faced with with trying to tell stories and giving them a new visual dimension. And I love that so much. And and I, I still feel like I'm discovering so much every day. I still always feel like the new kid who's constantly learning and trying to surprise and delight our readers. And you're six months in now to your new role at the New York Times Opinion. I mean, watching what you've done there has been such a joy for like all the photo nerds that I know. Like it's been really exciting to see you really define that space through your eye and the team that you're working with. But I guess one of the things that feels particularly exciting about it is that there feels like there's so much room to play and experiment with that content. I'm curious what you've discovered in the last six months working a new title, in a new context, in this space where there's lots of potential? 
Yeah, it's been a huge shift for me. So I went from publishing a magazine, California Sunday Magazine, every other month to now at New York Times Opinion. I think we publish about 90 pieces a week. That's wild. And so this would have been completely impossible at California Sunday because we were such a small team. It was myself, a photo editor, Leo, our creative director, and his few designers. And it's just a, a tiny team. And so we're only able to achieve a certain amount. And and especially our online present was basically just the magazine online. Um, we never thought about digital first in the way that we do at the Times. And at the Times, there's such an, a large infrastructure to make sure everything goes smoothly, you know, from breaking news, last minute stories, crashing in of new covers for Sunday Opinion. And there's a whole team of wonderful digital designers. So now we're able to do these interactive photo essays that I really never had the experience doing. And, and there's so many visually minded editors on Opinion who work on our guest essays and our columnists. And they're all so keen to collaborate, which, as you know, is essential to everything that we do. And it's just been a real joy. I'm so excited to try to make photo essays sing and working with our digital designers, our art directors, our brilliant editors. I'm so excited to think about how photo essays can be different, you know, moving forward. And there's the infrastructure to do that there. And everybody is super keen on experimentation, which as you can see from some of the commissions that we've been doing recently, I feel quite lucky to be here. And my current team has been at the time for several years and I learn from them every day. And slowly, I feel like we're bringing in talent that hasn't yet shot for the New York Times. And since we're opinion, we can really think about making stories in a, in a less kind of newsy journalistic way and and try to bring in some artists who can help tell our stories in a more nuanced way, maybe lyrical, a little bit more poetic, less representational way. So it is six months in and it's kind of mind boggling for me, you know, not coming from the news desks or or breaking news journalism before as, you know, it was very, very much in the long form storytelling sending out a photographer for a week or two, letting them do their thing and then seeing what happens. But in the last six months, we've had D'Angelo Lovell Williams traveling to Alabama. We've had photographers in Syria. Oscar Castillo showed us this look at Venezuelan migrants traveling via train. Sabia Semen returned to Turkey to photograph her homeland that was destroyed after the horrible earthquake. We've been in Ukraine. We've been in Somalia. I mean, Damon Winters photographed Donald Trump. It's, it's been a, a wide range of really remarkable stories thus far that we've been able to do together. I mean, it really is kind of miraculous, to be honest. Like, it's no secret that editorial is suffering in some parts. You know, magazines are closing all the time, publications are slashing budgets. And so we're in a really funny kind of, I don't know, like, it sometimes feels like we're a bit limited creatively sometimes. But what you've been doing feels like 
you've made it the place to watch. And that's what's been so exciting. Like, and, and the joy for me, honestly, is that I never know what you're going to show me. And that feels like the essence of kind of great photo direction, not just the sort of detail and the, and the sort of mastery of it, which we'll get into in a minute, but just like when you can surprise the readers, but sort of have a consistency of flavor that we sort of come to understand, that's always the sweet spot for me personally in commissioning. I am so happy to hear you say that because, you know, I, a lot of times we're just, we're experimenting and we're uh, learning as we go. And uh, we're, we have no shortage of incredible artists in New York and obviously around the world, but it was just such a joy recently to send Jason Nacido uh, to photograph scenes outside the Trump indictment. And we really want the photography to look different than the newsroom to kind of give a different perspective and a point of view. And I mean, look online for, for Jason's photographs. I love them so much, just capturing the, the essence of what was going on, this media spectacle in New York a couple weeks back. And that experimentation and not really knowing what's going to happen, but the conversations with artists are so important before to say, you know, this is an experiment. Are you game? And then we're working with people who are, you know, absolutely, I'd love to go do that. And it's just so much fun. Every day there's, there's a different story. We, we publish so much. And so hopefully the readers will start to see those little bits of unexpected, surprising storytelling. I think what comes through is your ability to really match make photographers to assignments in really nuanced and kind of unexpected ways. And one thing I'd love you to talk a little bit more about is your commissioning practice, as I think a lot of folks feel like that process in general can be quite opaque. So feel free to use an example, but could you unpack it for us? Sure. And I think to to go back in time of why I do what I do is you know, working in fashion for about 10 years in New York, working at W and L and starting out at Interview Magazine as a photo assistant. So the fashion magazines in New York would really hire only a small selection of photographers to shoot in the feature well. And I found that it was really, really hard to get in any new talent uh, except for in the front of the book, you know, so the, the smaller quarter page portraits, maybe a full page portrait in the front of the book. That was where you were able to really experiment and try someone new. But it was few and far between. And uh, I actually left New York to stop working in magazines. I was kind of done. And, and I wanted to work for bigger global organizations like Apple. I ended up doing some art direction for Airbnb to tell visual stories for a global audience. But then I quickly realized that I really missed the story and deeply meaningful journalism. And so I was approached to start California Sunday or be the founding photo director of California Sunday. And I took that experience of New York of how it's really only a handful of people shooting for all the magazines. And I wanted to completely change that because it reminded me of when I was in college thumbing through W Magazine, you know, Dennis Friedman's version of W Magazine, discovering so much while flipping through the pages. 
And so I wanted that to be kind of my organizing principle of California Sunday. So in every issue you're thumbing through and you're you're finding emerging photographers who have never thought of themselves in the editorial context before, but then you also are, are next to someone like Richard Misrak or Dina Lawson. Uh, that is really interesting to me and to also have those young people alongside the artists that have been in our industry for decades. That's just, I would have loved that for myself. And I love providing that for people. And so I would say that my, my day to day is, you know, there's the, the meeting with photographers, there's reviewing photo essay pitches along my team of photo editors and going out to see shows. I'm back in New York after eight years of being in California. So every weekend I'm seeing all the art. I often take breaks from photography on the weekend and see painting, sculpture, because then on Monday morning I come back and I'm refreshed and want to look at thousands of pictures again. So in all of that, there's the the day-to-day and, and trying to discover new talent. I do that also in my teaching as well, looking and, and trying to help students with their careers after they graduate, because it's kind of a wake-up call that you need to make money after school with your photography, or if you even mm-hmm. want to do that. Uh, and so... But for me, the visuals are really only one aspect to my commissioning. Of course, you know, there's, there's this person has photographed celebrities before, so they would be great at photographing celebrities. But I'm also quite interested in kind of how someone's work could respond and the social conditions in which it was made. So like who made it, when, why, this provides sort of a second layer of meaning. And I I could give an example of Wolfgang Tillman's. So I asked him to photograph Dr. Fauci. And so, you know, Tillman has been taking portraits of people for decades and his portraits of important people or notable people are presented in this really humble and and somewhat ordinary way. And I thought it would be beautiful to see his portrait of Dr. Fauci because of his style of portraiture is beautiful, but also because of his relationship to HIV, which is a major part of Dr. Fauci's legacy. And so Wolfgang's been taking the the drugs that Fauci invented for HIV since the 90s. And I knew that their meeting would allow for a fascinating conversation between the two, and it would generate this environment for such a meaningful portrait. And so Wolfgang also recorded their conversation, of course, with Fauci's approval, which we published as a Q&A alongside Fauci's op-ed for us, which was really beautiful. So it had this other, you know, there's the the literal, I think he would take an interesting portrait of him, but then there's also this other background information that is really interesting to me as a photo editor. But, you know, that's not always possible since we are publishing 90 stories a week. I think it's important to take some of them and kind of do something unexpected or surprising as much as we possibly can. And I hope that we're achieving that more and more. 
And I'm curious how much you think about audience or kind of where audience sits in your priority list. California Sunday and the opinion desk at the New York Times are are similar in that they're basically a general interest magazine. And, and I, in this first year, I really want to do a wide range of photo essays. So I'm not just speaking to, you know, our politics audience, because we have an audience in every sort of, every kind of topic, you know, sports, entertainment, celebrity, immigration issues, climate change. And so I'm thinking of all of those audiences at the same time. And in my first year, I'm hoping to publish photo essays that will give you that wide range. So, you know, Moises Saman wrote about his documenting the Iraq war for 20 years for us. And we and featured several photographs from his beautiful series there. I mentioned Sabia's experience of returning home after the earthquake hit Turkey. And then we have, you know, some experiments as well, which hopefully will, you know, for maybe it's all for you, Gem, too, <laughs> for the for the unexpected, kind of surprising, pushing the boundaries of storytelling. We paired Christopher Valentine's photographs of nature and kind of humankind's impact on nature for an Earth Day photo essay. And we paired him with Lydia Millay, who is a fiction writer. And she's looking in her own work, she kind of looks at the human destruction of Earth. And so pairing those two kinds of people together, he's never done anything in in publishing before. And Lydia writes novels. And I'm so interested in that in opinion. And hopefully, the audience will appreciate that as well. You know, it's it's something unexpected, but super visually driven and beautiful. And, you know, I want our visuals to help advance our understanding about the way we live now. And so the audience or the the readers, hopefully they'll see the world or reflect on their own experiences in a different way. And uh, I feel really grateful to be at the New York Times where the audience is already there, as opposed to California Sunday, where I spent many months before we started the magazine, just making mood boards of what I thought the thing should look like and emailing people and, you know, asking them, hey, do you want to shoot for this magazine that doesn't yet exist and kind of convincing them that it's going to be a great thing. That's a really different experience than coming into the New York Times, which has already won every single award in photography there is. It's been around forever. There are, you know, dozens of brilliant award-winning photo editors there. So it's it's a completely different experience, but the, the audience is there. And I, I hope they join me on the journey of this experimentation. <laughs> <laughs> So it's no pressure then. Right. No pressure. <laughs> um, I, w- I was going to ask you, and I am still curious about this, where you sit on the scale of like risk adverse versus pro risk when it comes to your commissioning. But I guess to sort of tack on the end of that, kind of what we were talking about before in terms of the way that industry works and who it's commissioning, I think a big part of the reason why sometimes titles don't take on working with emerging photographers or people straight out of college is because it it does have a higher risk. They 
they may not have that much experience. Like there's a lot of different things they need to juggle. Like their their visual language might still be emerging and they, you know, they might not be able to have a full grasp of the sort of roundedness of story that a publication might require. So I guess I'm curious how you navigate risk creatively, but also I'm curious what you've discovered in terms of best supporting emerging talent to be successful in editorial collaborations. So I think it is sometimes more time consuming to commission someone who has never photographed for a magazine or a newspaper before, but for me, it's completely worth it. And a big part of why I still work in journalism. When I was working in fashion, it was really hard for new up and comers to break in. You know, it was the the same kind of 10 or so photographers shooting all of the fashion magazines. And if you're a newbie, you're kind of maybe photographing a quarter page portrait or a full page portrait, but that didn't happen often. And so when starting California Sunday, I wanted to make sure that I was always commissioning new talent, emerging talent, recent grads. And sometimes, you know, that takes walking through the, each step of the process, but then that's only going to set them up for success for for future work with other publications. And so when we were working on our teen issue, which was an issue all about the lives of teenagers across California, I hired so many teens to photograph for that issue, which most of them were reliable, but you know, some of them ghosted us, which is okay. (laughs) Now's the time to do that, I guess. And then if we weren't having teens actually photographing, um, like Alessandra Sanguinetti photographed teens hanging out across America, and she had some teens assisting her on that, which was a, a real joy to kind of bring them into the world of image making for a publication. Uh, but now being that my my deadlines are so different than that, I think it's way more of a case-by-case basis. So if we're publishing a story tomorrow, I'll probably commission someone that has shot for the Times before or another publication because there's really no time for that back and forth or a reshoot if if things really go wrong. But I think, you know, if we have like three days or so, maybe a little bit longer to make the pictures, I'll probably push the team to find someone that might think of the story in a different way, who hasn't you know, recently shot for the newsroom before, which we're really trying to separate ourselves a lot more. But yeah, I mean, as I said, publishing about 90 stories a week, we have to I have to look at the volume and kind of pick and choose where we are going to take a chance or where we, you know, if we have extra time to walk this person through every step of the way, which, you know, we're always looking at drafts with the photographers, talking about the mood and the tone of the story, what kinds of pictures make sense for it. And so there's a little bit more of that when someone is just starting out. But I want them to start out in the industry on the right foot and feeling like they've been set up for success. And so it's, it's really, really worth it to me. Obviously, you have a very thoroughly researched 
creative approach to commissioning. But I guess I'm curious how you think about the agenda of opinion being this space of experimentation, this space to really push the story, this space that is distinguished from other parts of the paper. And just thinking about that in the context of which we live in terms of, you know, how much visual content is out there everywhere in front of our eyeballs all the time. I guess I'm curious what you're thinking in terms of how to get cut through in that context, because I guess I'm asking you this because you do it so well. Wow. Well, I'm happy to hear that. You know, it's a work in progress. And you're right. There is, we've already probably, you know, it's it's the almost 11 a.m. On, on Monday and probably already looked at hundreds of pictures today. And so a lot goes into that research of how the subject matter has been depicted before and who is the image maker who will think about it in a different way. Uh, you know, using Jason Nacito's Trump coverage as an example of that. But also what is the story trying to tell us and, and how can the visuals either lean into that and amplify that message? Or actually, do we want to create a jarring kind of metaphor to create something that leaves this lasting impression or, or more nuanced? Maybe it asks more questions than tells you exactly what you're looking at. And so, you know, we're distinct from the newsroom. And I think our photo essays, they're making an argument. They have a strong point of view. And a lot of times they're delivered in the author's own voice and they're, they're drawn from the, the author's expertise or experience in the field. And so hopefully with our photography, we're helping to expand our understanding of, a, of that world that gives insight into the complicated problems. We're anticipating big ideas and photographers who really have that cohesive point of view that feels a little bit more pointed with their perspective, I think is something that opinion is quite interested in. But again, we have to, we have to look to the story. We're always doing things in service of the story you know, the, the mood and the message of it. What is the scope and tone of the piece? What should readers take away? And so that, you know, under really understanding the story first and what form the visuals should take. So is it illustration, video, photo? And how do we add that new layer to it? I don't know if I answered your question at all, but it's a, you know, a work in progress to to really study up on that story and how it's been depicted before and try to turn it on its head and do something unexpected. And we can't do that all the time. Also the newsroom, it's, it's remarkable the amount of beautiful, surprising visual journalism that they churn out every single day. And I feel quite lucky to be, you know, opinion is separate, but it's, it's working alongside to really, tell deeply impactful stories every single day. Yeah, I realize when I'm asking you these questions that I kind of sound like a maniac because I'm basically trying to get you to reveal your secret source, but your secret source <laughs> is a lifetime of investment. And it's and it's impossible to articulate because it's, you know, it's almost everything from when we first started talking about when you started getting interested in photography. I feel like, you know, this is an amalgamation of talent and experience and perspective and curiosity and, and all that good stuff. 
Yeah. And a ton of, it really is so much research before you pick up the phone to call a photographer, you're doing so much research, you're becoming an expert in the subject matter. And that's also what I want the photographers to always be doing too. I always instill that with my students of just being endlessly curious about all the things, which is hard to do. But if an editor calls you up and you say, I'm interested in taking portraits of and landscapes, like that isn't, that isn't enough now. So, mm. you know, you've really got to sink your teeth into things. So you set yourself apart from the, the, you know, mass amounts of photographers out there. I have these conversations all the time now because I think there's still and I get why photographers feel like this but I think there's a sense of like if they stay open then they think there's more potential for commissions and I I personally feel like it's the absolute opposite and the more nuanced they can be and the more specific and sort of the more they can show their expertise and interest in a, in a particular area or several particular areas, like the more appealing that is for commissioners. I feel like the more work they will get from specificity. Absolutely. Because it, it's also an insight to who you are as a person, not even as a, as a photographer. You know, what are you interested and curious about on the weekends when you're not out, you know, on, on an assignment? Um, you know, if you're just waiting for that call and, and, and think that you're going to get the the calls from just telling people you like taking portraits, it might be difficult. But hey, maybe not. Maybe that works for some people. And I think with opinion, we're trying to, you know, the kind of trying to distill what makes sense for us versus the newsroom. I think we're also really open to working with artists. Like we just commissioned Aspen Mays to take pictures of these, you know, abortion pills when all of that nonsense was happening a couple weeks ago. And she just shows her work in galleries. And so expanding the notion of who who can be in the New York Times is really interesting for me and, and looking for more symbolic and abstract representations of, of images. You know, we're not simply documenting, we're not sending a photographer to document a news event, but but we want to help the reader explain what it all means. And so that means through photography, we're trying to evoke a feeling and, and kind of illuminating what matters, not just this, the, the document of what has happened. And again, that goes back to seeing the world or reflecting on the, their own experiences in a different light, which is just really, really important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. To jump off what you were saying there in terms of bringing artists into the space, I'd love if we could talk about some of the projects you've worked, like do a bit of a dive into some of the key or some of my hero shoots that you've done, I guess, because I think that would be really interesting to give people insight into the process, but also in terms of your thinking and your perspective as a photo director. But one of the shoots you did recently was this incredible series with Pamela Anderson, which sort of coincided with her Netflix show. And you commissioned Sarah Swinner. And the work is just disarming on multiple levels, visually, conceptually. It, it's it's a genius commission, actually, which I, I've kind of told you multiple times. I just think it blurs art and editorial in this really visceral way. I, I'd love you to talk us through your decisions around that sort of um, bringing those two women together and kind of how the shoot came into being. Absolutely. It was such a joy and so much fun. So 
as you mentioned, one of one of my first projects at the Times was to commission someone to accompany Jessica Bennett's piece about Pamela Anderson. And so again, starting with the story, what is the story about? So in January, this past January, Pamela was releasing a, a memoir about her life and upbringing, the effects of that infamous sex tape, as well as the as a new Netflix documentary that was executive produced by her adult son. And so Jess was writing about Pamela's place and culture and what the return of one of America's most famous sex symbols can tell us about today. And so this moment in Pamela Anderson's life was really, you know, her finally speaking for herself because that, that Hulu show, she didn't really want to be, a, I don't think she was a part of. And so this was finally her moment. And also Jess was placing her kind of in American pop culture and her sort of icon status. And so I immediately thought of Sarah right away, who is this brilliant photography and video artist. And she's so interested in her own work um, in the way that images accumulate and endure and kind of change over time. And so she's constantly pulling from archives and and recontextualizing these images and visual materials and, and the way that she layers imagery and uses art history references constantly um, was perfect for this. And so we sent her and, and Sarah's also Canadian and Pamela is too. So that was great. And, uh, and so Sarah went to photograph Pamela in Vancouver Island and also uh, Jessica Bennett had also been interviewing Pamela in Vancouver Island. And she told me that Pamela, as a uh, way to kind of get her creative juices flowing for writing the book, she herself would make photo collages. So I knew that Sarah was just totally set up for success there, that Pamela was going to show her all of her photo collages from like old magazines, headlines, pictures, her and Tommy. So that was pretty remarkable. And so, yeah, again, the, the research goes into it, the uh, pulling examples of Sarah's work, talking to her about what she wants to do too. Pamela is Sarah's top three people in the world that she wanted to photograph. So that was so exciting. And so I was really interested in the idea of having all of these images of Pamela through her years, you know, the iconic versions of Pamela and seeing those in the same composition as current day Pam. And so we came up with this kind of video idea of having Pamela there, kind of still a still photograph of Pamela, and then uh, a video montage of you know, all of these pictures of Pamela kind of framing around her. And then we also, I think Sarah brought a, her Super 8 camera, and we asked Pamela to do a little bit of video. It was really playful and surprising, and I'm really proud of it. I mean, it is unreal. Like, it really is an incredible meeting of minds, truly. And I think what continues to make it fascinating for me to look back on is 
yes, it has all of this. I mean, the connection through collage was just, it, it, it's, you just don't expect it and, it and it's brilliant. But just thinking about Sarah's work and how it interrogates how women have been used in capitalism and, and this sort of manipulation of beauty standards and all of these different things, which Pamela's kind of been entangled with throughout her life whether she liked it or not, feels like it comes through because Sarah normally uses models in her work or herself. But to see a celebrity stand in for that, like it was just, I just thought it was remarkable. And it, it's interesting, I guess we started this by talking about this blurring of art into editorial, but also Sarah is showing this piece in her upcoming exhibition at Foam. So it's almost the blurring of editorial into art as well, which I think is really exciting. Absolutely. And I knew that Sarah would, you know, since it was so in line with her art practice, I knew that she would be using the work for years to come. And also, probably most important to me is that Pamela, after the shoot, told our writer that she felt so seen with this work. And so I I feel really proud about that. And, and I hope Sarah can photograph Pamela again because I want to see more. <laughs> yeah, we all do. It would be amazing. Another shoot I love that you did was for California Sunday, and it was a shoot by Dina Lawson of the director Melina Matsukas. I'd love to hear a little bit about what your decisions were around making that pairing and how it came about. I had worked with Dina a few years prior. She photographed another director for us, and I was doing research on Melina Mitsukas, again, get the story in. So I do a deep dive of the subject to see how she's been photographed before and also what sorts of things she's, she's interested in with her, her own filmmaking. So Melina probably directed many, many Beyonce videos. This was a feature that we were doing for her first film, Queen and Slim. And so in an article, she had she had said that she used some of Dina Lawson's pictures as reference uh, for her filmmaking. I thought that was interesting. And so then, you know, we get in touch with the publicist and they actually brought three photographer suggestions to me, which is quite common when I would work with, you know, celebrities, they have their their photographers that they love and feel comfortable using. So I, I understood that. So I proposed Dina Lawson for the shoot and they just, you know, they were super game to work with her because uh, Melina mentioned to her team that she was a hugely influenced by Dina. And so with California Sunday, we didn't really do any studio portraiture because the magazine was so focused on telling stories about people and the places they inhabit and how much your environment can can kind of add to that photography. So we only did, you know, a few studio shoots in the several years that we existed. So after speaking with the writer, I wanted to understand what exactly she was going to be featuring. You know, is it Melina's life in LA? Is it, is she going to touch upon her life growing up in New York? And so we had Dina photograph Melina at her grandmother's apartment in Co-op City in the Bronx. And we actually had her grandmother as well in 
one of the pictures. And so, you know, the way that Dina occupies space is just like no one else. And it was a really beautiful commission. And again, I think Melina, you know, asked for prints after the shoot for her grandmother. And it was a really remarkable, very in line with what Dina already does. And, but of course she adds multi-layers to her environmental portraits, which are just always are remarkable to see, like you've never seen it before. I just really adored that cover. And it was one of our last covers we did. It was so beautiful. I guess I'd love for you to talk about one of your favorite shoots as well from your career. Sure. I would probably say my California Sunday photo issue which was so much work and so much fun. And I look back on it and talk about it to my students every time I teach. I'm super, super proud of it and what we were able to achieve with such a tiny team. So uh, California Sunday, we would do a themed issue each year. One year, as I mentioned before, we did something on the lives of teenagers. We did a sound issue. We did an escape issue. And so in December 2018, we knew that we wanted to make an issue told entirely through photography. And so we looked at stories dominating the news as a as an entry point to figuring out how exactly or what exactly we would do with photography. And so we looked at the immigration issues, rising housing costs, wildfires that were taking over the West. And we all thought that the idea of home and how people kind of come to find it and define it felt really, really urgent and important. And also that theme is so rich and complex that we knew that we'd be able to represent as many different definitions of home as possible. And so in addition to the photographs and captions that are in each story, there's also an audio component to the issue. And so you have the option to hear from the subjects directly via these audio footnotes by visiting the website, or you can view them on your phone. And so listening to their voices, we all felt really made for such a intimate and multi-layered viewing experience. And so in each of our themed issues, we would always have an anchoring photo essay. And so that photo essay in this issue was titled At Home. And so I assigned 19 photographers across 10 states and we asked them the prompt. We asked them to wander and look for stories of where people felt most at home. And so in that portfolio, I asked Katie Grannon to photograph, Andrea Parlato and her partner Gregory Halpern went off the grid and photographed somewhere out west. And then someone like Taylor K. Johnson, who had just graduated from CCA in San Francisco, photographed um, some some teens who were boxing out west. Uh, and Erica Demon photographed some couples in California. And so you know, these photographers are are shooting over the course of a few weeks. They're also taking audio uh, at the same time, which was a huge ask, but they were game. And so with this photo essay, we did something that we had never done before. We expanded the story off the printed page into a gallery show, which opened at Apsher Gallery. And so 
you know, we're, we're working on the print issue, but we're also working on the design of our first ever gallery show and what that should look like. So again, pulling references of photography installation that felt kind of editorial, unexpected. We had huge landscape photos that were kind of overlaid with portraits of the people. Again, the sense of place was super important to the story. And so in print, we only had room for about 24 pages for the photo essay, but we had 19 photographers shooting sometimes you know, over the course of two weeks. And so we had hundreds of images. And so in that case, it was good to have all those images to, to look at because we had 3,000 square feet to fill at Aperture. And so, which we did, I think we had about 90 photographs in that show. And, and it was a really remarkable experience. I had always dreamed of, of taking visual journalism off the printed page and bringing it to different kinds of people who might have not seen this smaller kind of niche publication set in California. And it was a lot of fun. And I hope to do something like that in the future. I'm also really interested in the role commissioners play in society, which I think can often get overlooked, even by some commissioners themselves. And maybe that is because you know, there's a lot of responsibility on a commissioner's shoulders, not just in the practicalities and the logistics of their job, but in, you know, depending on where your position is, you're shaping public opinion. There's a lot of power there in terms of how the images that are being made make us as the viewers, as the as citizens, like think about different parts of life and the world we live in and, and how pictures kind of shape and inform our relationship with the world. And I think, you know, I've always just been aware of what a almost juggernaut of responsibility that is. And I guess I'm curious how you think about your role and the sort of inherent power that comes with that and, and sort of have, especially being, you know, one of the world's most influential titles. I take it so seriously. Sometimes it's crushing how seriously I take it. And I think that we have the power to help people see the world in, in a new way and inspire change. And it's so important to ensure that when we're featuring stories about people who have maybe been through something horrific, like an earthquake or war, we're honoring the people in the pictures, in the story, in the most humane and authentic and respectful way. And I'm very aware of what we're trying to communicate it has a lasting power to it. And I think that goes back to the same thing I've said of just the endless research and care that we take into making sure that our subjects are represented in a way that, that we'll feel good about in 5, 10, 15 years. We, as in the person behind the camera, the person in front of the camera, the, the person writing the story, the art directors designing the page, the photo editors editing the pictures. And there's so much care goes into every decision when we're creating these stories. And of course, now being at the New York Times and having this global audience, millions of people are looking at this. So it's super important to take your time. 
I guess like thinking about where we stand in the industry now, as we kind of just sort of almost looping back to where we started, like it, we're we're in an industry in flux for many different reasons, from you know economics to power. And I guess I'm curious what you're most hopeful for in terms of where the industry could have the potential to go. I think that you know it's it's really interesting to see. I'm, I'm teaching at Parsons School of Design right now. And I'm seeing students who aren't just interested in taking pictures for a, a gallery wall or a book. Um, they're really interested and curious about crossing into other modes of storytelling that, that could really have a, a huge impact on the world's less, you know, kind of personal stories. And I always try to instill in them to get out of your comfort zone and try new things and be vulnerable because it's it's scary to do so and the more you can do that earlier on i think that the better it is for everyone once they graduate school and i i'm hopeful about that about that curiosity that these students have and their their willingness to try new things and and kind of unlearn what they've heard about how how your career has to go and the wide range of interests in, in that these students have and the kinds of classes that they're taking. And, uh, and I'm also seeing a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of wonderful new names being published by, by photo editors that are bringing in a lot more voices, which makes it such a more dynamic space to be in. Yeah, it's true. It feels like things are changing and it's, and it's a really, it's, beginning to become an exciting space again not that it wasn't you know everything ebbs and flows but it feels like the boundaries and the edges of things are starting to be reworked in a really exciting way I think so too I mean I'm such an optimist I don't think I would be doing this if I wasn't an optimist I mean every day there's just such exciting work being made and I'm grateful to be a part of that how do you deal with self-doubt if I feel self-doubt, it probably means I'm unprepared or I don't know if enough about a certain story or topic. And so I do a deep dive and become an expert. And then hopefully that relieves some of my crushing self-doubt. How did success change your work? I don't know if success has changed anything. I mean, I still joke that I'm an intern, you know, with California Sunday, I started trying to convince people to shoot for a magazine that didn't exist yet. And so I guess at the New York Times, everybody emails me back. So success has changed my work that I get more responses to emails now <laughs> than the <laughs> early days at California Sunday. <laughs> what does the practice of photo direction enable you to do that perhaps if you would have gone down a different career wouldn't be an option? I love being a photo editor because I am constantly meeting new people and talking to new people. I think if I had chose something else where I was just in front of my computer or didn't have to talk to anybody besides my colleagues, that would be a very different experience for me. And it's really enabled me to not be as shy as I once was. I grew up very shy and now uh, my friends laugh at me when I say that I'm really a shy kid at heart. But the the constantly, you know, meeting and working with students, meeting photographers, seeing new works in galleries, talking to gallery people, I'm just really 
able to see the world through so many different kinds of lived experiences, which I'm grateful for. And you've had such a vibrant career so far. I'm curious, has there been anything you've had to unlearn along the way? I think there are a lot of people who tell you everything has to be done a certain way. And I had to learn unlearn that a little bit and allow myself to explore other ways of doing things always. And, and that takes a bit of confidence and courage and it's scary. And there's really that fear of the unknown that can set you back and just, you know, cause you to do the same thing of, of everybody else. And, and I kind of have to push that aside and forge ahead and, and try something new. And that's a scary thing, but it's always, always worth it. Do you still believe that photographs can shift thinking and consciousness? Absolutely. I mean, photographs can lead to a a more empathetic world. They can influence change. I mean, they make sense for us in this, in this chaotic world. And, you know, a successful story can be universally understood and, and just create a sense of urgency that will move people to change, move people to action. I wanted to ask you the question that I ask everyone at the end of the show, and that's what matters more to you, the process of making the work or the final image or final paper? It's definitely the process for me because getting so many minds together from the photographer, a prop stylist, the designer, the art director, the creative director, the writers, getting all of those minds together to talk about a picture or a video or an illustration and to unpack the meaning and the message before you even, you know, get to set or click the shutter. That process of collaboration uh, just warms my heart every day. I love it. Oh, I love to hear it. Uh, Thank you so much, Jackie. Honestly, it was such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much, Jem. Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.